everybody. Welcome back to another episode of CISO Talk. I'm joined by my, my partner, my co-host, JJ. How are you doing today, JJ Manella? Hello, Mitch and peoples. I am great. It's a wonderful, I don't know what day it is, but it's a wonderful whatever day it is. <laughs> Boy, you know, the weather's getting better and seems like people are getting out and now we got to deal with our yards and all that fun kind of stuff. But that's a, that's that's the gardening show. We're not doing that show today. But <laughs> we've got a great guest. Um, you know, I having been a CIO, I've had security incidents that I've had to deal with. Nothing major, like not, not really serious. I'm sure, JJ, you've worked with companies that, of course, have dealt with some pretty serious security cyber incidents. Um, but I think our guest today, Stephen Reynolds, will be able to give us kind of an insider view because he's known as the person, first person Fortune <laughs> 500 companies call when they're under attack. He's the, he's the first fire person in the building, right? <laughs> <laughs> the building's burning down. So, um, Stephen, introduce yourself. We'd love to hear a little bit about you and tell us about where you work, what, you, what the company does. Sure. So Stephen Reynolds, I'm a partner at a law firm, Baker McKinsey, um, based out of their Chicago office, but work remotely. Um, my practice is helping uh, clients, like I said, when they're going through a serious cybersecurity incident. And then I also help companies with uh, regulation, regulatory investigations and litigation that may follow a cybersecurity incident. Wow. Okay. That's a lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is kind of a second career for me. I was a software developer before becoming an attorney. So that's how I ended up in this space. Interesting. Well, actually, Steve, yeah, Steve, go ahead. Sorry, I, I got to jump in because I saw your profile. I was like, we have got to talk to this guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that was my first question is, um, are are you... Where are you in the in the legal ecosystem? Are are you a, a lawyer? Did you go through law training? Because I saw a lot of your background was actually technical. So how'd you get there? Yeah, so I started off, this was actually really in, in school. I started doing uh, software development. Actually, one of the first, I started by building websites for local businesses when I was in high school. And actually, one of the first websites I built was for an attorney in my hometown of Sebastian, Florida. Um, and I, had, of course, I had no idea I'd go to law school at that time. Uh, but no, my practice is, is legal. I, I work as a partner to law firm. So I'm helping with the legal aspects, but I get very involved with the computer forensics people who often come in on a cybersecurity incident. Uh, I, I joke that a lot of my job is just helping translate between the attorneys and the uh, information security people and executives uh, because they kind of all speak different languages. That's inter it's interesting that. Um, so tell us about this, the move from thinking of the world as a software engineer and thinking of the world as in the role that you're playing now. How do you look at things differently now? Yeah, I, I do miss sometimes the software engineer world because I felt like I was more creating things. Oftentimes now I'm just coming in when something's already gone wrong. And I, I you know, my main goal is to give legal advice to clients. But a lot of what I'm doing is really just helping people solve problems or make a solution or or help them come up with a solution to a, a problem or a tricky situation. So in a lot of respects, it's similar. Um, you know, you're coming in and, you know, when as a software developer, like, you know, one of my first projects for building an online store and how do we integrate shipping and calculate how much to price for orders and do credit card processing and mapping that out? Now I'm coming into, you know, something's already gone wrong. How do we work with the computer forensics folks? How do we involve, you know, public relations people for messaging and deal with media inquiries? So 
part of it still is just problem solving at its core, uh, but under a little more stress as, a, as an attorney than it was as a, under a, as a software developer. So I'm, I'm curious, I have so many questions, but let me start with this one. Because um, I think one of the things, you know, we hear and we tell people in this space is, you know, when you've had an incident, the first thing you have to do is is call your insurance company if if you've engaged in, in cyber insurance and they're going to direct you to that. Um, so where do you guys fit in to that? Do you work with, you know, as, as kind of a approved provider through some of the insurance companies? Do you work directly with the organizations? And is that through, and I'm kind of more just broadly asking how, how this field works. Are you guys kind of on retainer? Because swooping in after an incident, of course, when you have no relationship with somebody is certainly challenging. So how, how does that model work? Sure. So different law firms are different. So, and and you, you're right to pick on uh, hit on cyber insurance. That's a big part of what we do. A lot of companies have cyber liability insurance that help them through an incident, and that is often one of the first things you need to do is contact your insurer. Just a quick and a free tidbit is some insurance companies won't pay what they call pre-notification costs. So any Body you retain to help any costs you incur before notice may not get paid. So you definitely want to do notice very early on, but you also want to make sure you do notice correct. So I would suggest working with your attorneys to make sure that notice is done to maximize your potential uh, to get insurance coverage under your policy. Um, different law firms handle this differently. Some are like you described on panels. So they actually have agreements with the insurance companies. And when you notify your insurer, uh, they will say, here's a law firm that we recommend is your data, they'll call it like your data breach coach to help you through the incident. Other law firms may get pre-approved by the carrier. So, you know, if you are a company going, purchasing cyber insurance during the purchase or during your renewal phase, you can say, here's who we want to work with if we have a data security incident and get them pre-approved by your insurer. Um, For my firm in particular at Baker McKenzie, we often come in more in that role or the client has cyber insurance and we're getting approval by the carrier uh, during the incident, or the carrier gives our client the ability to hire whoever they want. Uh, But we're typically not on an insurance panel, uh, but there are other law firms that do that. So so out of like the 100%, what percentage would you say of, of the clients that you guys in your firm already have relationships with prior to an incident versus that is when the relationship initiates? I'd say typically we already have a relationship with the the client. You want to call someone you know and you trust and have worked with before. Uh, Sometimes I may not have worked with them, you know, in particular. So like I said, I usually come in when things have gone wrong. So they may have worked with some of our privacy people before um, or done like a tabletop exercise with us before. Or maybe, you know, in an ideal situation, we actually help them draft their incident response plans Mm -hmm. and policies. So we are familiar with what their procedures are in the event of an incident. and then they give us that call. Thanks. I'm I'm curious about so that that sounds like, I mean all right, a great situation where you know what their process is because yeah. you helped shape and create it. Is that one of the first questions? Well, tell us what do you ask? You know, hi, this is Mitch from ABC Company, and we have a whole lot of whip ass can coming at us, and we need them some help over here. Can you help? Come on yeah. over, Stephen. What <laughs> so, what do you do first? Yeah, so I'll borrow an analogy from the medical field and a lot of my first ransomware matters were for hospital hospital clients or people in healthcare. So it's almost like a triage process. So I want to first assess where they are in the process. Like, is it a broken arm to where 
you know, and in the triage analogy, you know, it's, it's a bad situation, but it's not that time critical, you know, fixing a broken arm in 30 minutes versus two hours, you may be in some pain, but it's not a life or death issue. Um, typically, um, are they not breathing? You know, that's an immediate issue. We need people immediately on the phone. So I'm oftentimes trying to assess what they've already done and where they are. So sometimes a client is calling and saying, email is down. We can't print. We can't communicate. We're basically blind. Um, and we, we, don't even know how to contact, you know, our ins- a lot of times on the insurance note, um, I will tell clients when we're doing their incident response plans, send me a copy of your insurance policy, because oftentimes during a ransomware incident, they can't access the files that have the contact information of the insurance person or even the insurance policy or, or the insurance broker's information. So I'm usually trying to assess where the client is in the situation. And then a lot of it is bringing in or determining what resources they need brought in. So sometimes they will call and say, we're already working with a forensics provider like Mandiant or CrowdStrike or or Kivu or one of these companies that come in and assist the information security folks. Other times they will say, we don't know what to do or we don't know who to call. And then I'm you know suggesting or, or bringing in someone to help them with that situation. So a lot of it's kind of an initial assessment of where they are. Uh, different companies will be at different levels of sophistication. Um, what a lot of this involves, to be honest, is just kind of project management. You've got multiple different work streams and things going on. So part of it is eradication. I'll borrow from my hospital analogy. So stopping the bleeding is kind of one of the key things. So making sure the attackers are out of their system. So I've had incidents, especially early on when people are less familiar, where they're emailing me and one of the from their company emails. And one of the first things I'll ask, I'll pick up the phone and call. Do you know if your email system is secure? Because I don't want the attackers reading my emails uh, back to them. And they'll say, oh, I didn't think about that, you know, sometimes. And so we'll switch to an out-of-band communications method like Signal or WhatsApp or just, just iMessage on, on phones. Um, so a lot of it is figuring out who we need to bring in and what needs to be done first. And like I said, it's, it's really a lot of project management um, coupled with, you know, letting them know of potential legal risk. Um, I hate to like sound scary, but little decisions that companies make at the outset of information security incidents can have profound consequences um, when you go through a legal process and litigation or regulatory investigations, things that companies may think aren't that important of decisions, or, you know, you're stressed, you're panicked at the moment and making, you know, the best decision you can. Oftentimes as humans, we make uh, incorrect decisions uh, in panic situations. Um, And so a lot of what I'm doing is actually trying to keep people from making mistakes uh, early on. That's one of the things I think, you know, having an incident response plan. And I think we, I don't know, I hear a lot of questions around this regularly, but I think a lot of organizations are, they know they need to do something, but they don't know what to do, when or how, you know, but trying to respond to an incident. I mean, there's a, there's a whole subset of products out there now for you kind of described, you know, out of band communication, because you may not have access to email or any of the corporate resources, anything, right? Your your corporate phone, your laptop, your email applications, et cetera. So there's, there's entire subsets of products built on pre-planning for incident response with those out of band, you know, getting your base, you know, personal email, text messages, et cetera. Um, and then the, you know, you mentioned some of those snap decisions is, you know, I know even clients I've worked with because I want, you know, I don't work in incident response. So we don't, I don't do that service for them, but I find out after the fact, what they've done is basically destroyed any opportunity for forensics evidence in their attempt to just stop what was happening. 
um, because they didn't know ahead of time what they what they should or shouldn't be doing. Um, so I'm curious about, you know, do you have any war stories uh, around some yeah, of that? Absolutely. So. <laughs> So, you know, this is general advice. I'm, you know, I'm not the technical person coming into these, but generally, if you're going through a ransomware incident, don't unplug and turn off computers. Uh, you want the encryption. You know, what ransomware does, you know, it encrypts files on your computer and servers. You want it to either fully run or don't run, but you don't mm. want to catch it in between because then you just get corrupted files. So even if you pay the ransom, there's no way to decrypt those files. So you want to disconnect computers from the network. Uh, manually or however you can do that through hardware, uh, but you don't want to generally, um, you know, unplug them, um, you know, from power or turn them off uh, because that can actually make things worse. Or I've even seen, uh, JJ, that what you described, people say, oh, let's just start wiping, you know, computers or servers, and that destroys some of the forensics evidence we actually needed or could have used to restore files. So yeah. uh, you're, you're absolutely right. There's some key mistakes you can make from a technical perspective at the outset. Are there other non-technical things, decisions that companies make early on in that incident process that have profound consequences? Yeah, absolutely. I think on the non-technical, it's usually communications. Um, so like I like to say when there's a lawsuit over an information security incident, um, when there's a, a regulator or a plaintiff suing a company uh, for an incident that occurred, it's a little bit difficult and maybe really difficult to prove that that company had bad information procedures or policies or practices. You may have to bring in an expert and talk about, you know, they should have had multi-factor authentication, but they didn't. Here's what the industry standard is. That's a more complex case. A much easier case is to say this company said they were doing X, but they were actually doing Y. They made a misrepresentation or maybe they made fraud or they stated something incorrectly. And I like to think a lot of our clients, like I said, during a data security incident, it's usually the worst possible time. They often have been on holidays and weekends. I just had one come in on Easter Sunday, uh, you know, just recently. Um, so this always happens like that. So I don't think clients try to mislead or make representations. But I think what may happen is you're putting out information or you're getting incomplete and possibly inaccurate information. And if you start repeating that information, it may look, you know, a year later or two years later when there's a lawsuit, like you said something that was untrue. So the, the kind of short answer makes to your question is, uh, one of the big mistakes I see companies make is a rush to put out communications. You may have customers asking questions. Why are your systems down? You may have uh, reporters asking questions, you know, they're, they're bloggers and people you may be familiar with that, that look for data breaches and, you know, look on the dark web websites that these ransomware groups use and will see your company's name and will ask questions. And clients oftentimes may put out information that they have, like, yes, we're aware of a cyber attack, but no credit cards or financial information was impacted. Do we really know that? That's what we know as of right now. If that may prove to be you know, inaccurate later, it looks like a misrepresentation. Um, so one of the key kind of things we work with clients on is to make sure the communications are accurate or we, you know, say we don't have information. Sometimes the best answer is actually, I don't know, or we don't know yet, but it's kind of a difficult thing to coach people to say. I think we like to be able to say, here's what we know right now. And sometimes uh, we really don't need to say anything or say we're still investigating. Yeah. And those, those, I feel like the, uh, where we, you know, in the past six months, we've seen some relatively high profile things, including including LastPass, right? And I think, and I'm just picking on them because that was pretty visible, but there's so many others. And I feel like the information that comes out is, 
We currently have no evidence indicating the attackers were able to access X, Y, and Z. And of course, most of us are going, well, you don't have any evidence that they weren't. (laughs) Yeah, so you might (laughs) just say you don't know and then come back when you've got something a little more actionable for us. Yes, yeah, that's exactly right. That's a great example of we we have seen no evidence of X, Y, Z. It's like, well, it's maybe better to say we're investigating and, you know, we're going to be diligent and thorough. When when do you involve law enforcement in this? What's the decide? Like, what's the logic chain of when and and whether to bring law enforcement in? Yeah, so working in a in a global law firm and with clients that have global presences, uh, this really has there are a lot of issues involved. As you may be familiar with, under privacy laws um, in some countries, I'll just you know begin kind of open. Some countries may not like uh, you know involvement with U.S. law enforcement as much as others do. Um, so it's a it can be a tricky decision, and there are some legal aspects involved with that too. But I will say in the event of, for for example, ransomware incidents, which are a lot of the incidents I work, I oftentimes try to get U.S. law enforcement involved uh, sooner than later. Um, when I first started doing these types of incidents, I would say that U.S. law enforcement was less knowledgeable and prepared for ransomware. Now, I think they are really, uh, really going to be really helpful, either sometimes the FBI or sometimes working with the U.S. Secret Service. Um, in particular for financial crimes uh, with the U.S. Secret Service, for example. Uh, and often one of the attacks we see a lot of is business email compromise. So I pretend to be someone in your organization and convince someone to wire out $2 million to a malicious party. You know, it's the, the classic, the emails will say something like, hey, just closed a business deal in Hong Kong, need you to wire this money, confidential transaction, don't tell anyone about it. And they trick some poor person into actually sending the money out. If that gets caught and detected within usually 72 hours or so, and we report it to U.S. law enforcement, they have ways of actually being able to stop that transfer or reverse it and get that money back. So in those types of situations, that's one of the first calls I would make. And then insurance, of course, because there may be insurance uh, if you aren't able to recover the money. In a ransomware situation, not as urgent as the fund transfer fraud situation, the FBI or Secret Service aren't usually able to come in and you know shut down the bad guy and decrypt your files. But there are some instances, uh, Hive uh, in particular, there's a ransomware threat actor group where um, law enforcement was able to basically dismantle this group and was able to get some uh, decryptors uh, for companies that were victims of Hive. So I would put that higher up on the list of priorities. But a lot of times, you know, there's some immediate concerns of, you know, if we're using the medical analogy, stopping the bleeding, if we're using the fire, kind of putting out the fire first um, before, you know, calling uh, calling the uh, law enforcement to come in. You guys keep saying firefighters, but I'm imagining Ghostbusters. (laughs) (laughs) I like that one. (laughs) Who are you going to (laughs) call? So I'm interested, like some of the business email compromise. So I've, you know, I've seen some of these that are really tricky. Um, I know one of my clients, the the attacker, um, if you would, had registered a domain that was exactly the same as the company's domain except for there was an I in the domain. So they used a lowercase L. So when you look at it, it looks exactly like the domain. So they recreated the, you know, most of the the user and directory infrastructure from that. They somehow, still don't know how, um, scraped an entire email signature. Like exactly, you know, not recreated one that was similar, but the exact email signature that was used for this person uh, um, that handled accounting uh, inside the organization. So it was, you know, this is 
right before a lot of the products started adding that banner that's like, this is from outside your organization. Um, But there's some tricky stuff that they do. Yeah. Yeah. That one I see a lot. Um, Oh, sorry. No, I want to hear more. I want to hear some of the stuff that you see. Yeah. that's a common tactic. They're registering a domain close to yours. So instead of an M, you register two Ns. You know, on phones in particular, those things just kind of blend together and they look very similar. Um, if I could share one of my my kind of, you know, I wouldn't say one of my favorite attacks, but one I thought, wow, that was pretty tricky. That was, yeah, I got to give it to the attackers. I had one where the attackers got into a company's uh, payroll system and they changed all of the... Um, the uh, banking information for only the high earning employees, which I don't know if it was because they thought those people would be less likely to notice or they were kind of maybe thought they were Robin Hood. But for the very high earners at this organization, they changed all of their banking information for their payroll for direct deposit. Um, what they did, though, the, the third party system that the company used for payroll uh, sends alerts to users saying, hey, your banking information has been updated. So hopefully, you know, they would notify the company and they know that someone infiltrated their system. What the attackers did, too, was send out an email from a domain name, not similar to my client's domain name, but similar to the payroll company's domain name and said, hey, we're doing network updates this weekend. You may get these errant emails about your banking information being changed. Please disregard. I thought, <laughs> wow, that's pretty clever. Uh, they they wow. put a lot of thought and planning into this attack. Fortunately, this company was able to, for most of these, uh, stop the uh, the payroll distribution from going out to the attackers. But I thought, you know, they're pretty clever with these tricks. And like you said, um, they didn't really have to get inside the company's network to do this attack. They just did this by, you know, creating a, a you know domain similar to another one, and then were able to access an account on a third-party uh, payroll system. Yeah, the sprawl we have and the footprint is just absolutely amazing at this point. Yeah. It re- reminds me of the uh, the the being one of the ingenious things you mentioned about them going after the people of the high financial earners. It's like, well, yeah, it reminds me of the old uh, joke. Why do they keep right robbing banks? Because it always seems like they get caught. Well, that's where the money is. Yeah. Which is sort of an adage for me of follow the money. I mean, and look for the easiest path to it. It doesn't have to be complicated, right? Yeah, for sure. That's why I think the fund transfer fraud stuff is so prevalent because the old days, the model that the attackers used when I, you know, the old days, not too long ago, was to steal data and then sell it. Basically, they would steal, you know, credit card number, credit card information, social security numbers to commit identity theft after driver's license numbers, and then sell that to people who then used it for identity theft and monetized it. Um, the new model is really just trying to take money directly. Um, either through fund transfer fraud, like we described, or through ransomware where you're extorting it or some other extortion. So the attackers have kind of figured out, I think, well, two things. One, once you've stolen everyone's social security numbers, uh, they're not worth anything anymore. And I think that's almost what has happened. Uh, They already took them. You can't really steal those twice. Um, And so they're not worth as much anymore to steal. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing is it's more profitable and beneficial for them to just steal money directly or get money directly rather than stealing something and then having to turn around and sell it. And even the threat of elevating the crime to a wire fraud or financial fraud, that's not a deterrent? 
You would think so. Um, but unfortunately, I think what they use is foreign banks uh, where it's, you know, they're they're less likely to be a cop. There's a whole kind of ecosystem of, you know, people involved. Um, my understanding from law enforcement is some of the people involved may be unknowingly involved. Like they will sell someone, hey, you're you're doing this work from home and we're going to wire you money. And then once you get this wire, we need you to do these steps. And so some of the people involved in these transactions may not even understand they're part of a criminal enterprise, but yeah, I think that's how they, uh, they, they work. And then unfortunately with the advent of cryptocurrency, I think that's also helped the, uh, the attackers better hide, uh, resources, but some of them do get caught. Um, and unfortunately working with law enforcement is a way to, uh, you know, uh, increase the chances that, that they do get apprehended. Stephen, have you worked Directly, like during a, a ransomware negotiation with. Sure. Okay. I look, Let's yeah, talk just about that. yeah, those are interesting. I just tell it. Uh, yeah, tell us, tell us more. Typically, and we all advise clients not to do the negotiation themselves. There are third party companies that can help you with these negotiations, not to plug any, but companies like Kivu, uh, Coveware is one, uh, Arite, uh, where these people have people who are maybe sometimes former law enforcement, but they have experience in dealing with the different threat actor groups and they help you through these negotiations. So, um, yeah, those are interesting. So what oftentimes happens is they will make a demand. It's really a business to them. So let me maybe back up. Uh, ransomware is kind of an affiliate model. It's it's almost like think of it as franchise. So let's say, uh, JJ, you want to start doing ransomware. So you may reach out, break into a company's network, um, and then reach out to a threat group, let's say Lockbit or, or Hive or whatever group, and say, hey, I got in this company's environment. Give me the tools to deploy the ransomware. And then they will tell you, you'll get 80% of whatever ransom uh, we collect, and the main group will collect 20%. And literally, when you know I've helped clients with making those payments, they will give you two separate Bitcoin wallets and tell you 20% goes to this one and 80% goes to other. So it's really a kind of ransomware as a service or an affiliate model, I would think of it almost like a franchise uh, kind of model. Like so, Mary Kay malware. I'm <laughs> going to use that one. Basically, that's it. So anyone can be involved. So when you're dealing with, uh, which which makes, um, which is why that's important because when you're doing these threat negotiations, it's important to realize that there are multiple people involved. So what can happen when you're negotiating with the threat actor group is let's say their initial demand, they may say is $5 million. Uh, usually you can talk them down on that demand depending on the threat actor group, but you may get like a side channel communication. These are, these are organizations and this is a business, but they're loosely affiliated, right? So you may get a side communication. Like let's say you say, we're never going to pay you $5 million. The most we'll ever pay is 1 million and you, your, your company stands to that and says, we're not going to go, not going to budge a penny. We're never going to get to 5 million. Someone else may reach out to you and say, Hey, I actually have access to the decryption key. I'll take the one million, um, you know, instead. And so it, it gets very complicated. So you have a lot of things to decide wow. of whether you're willing to trust this person or not. I would say not. Um, but uh, these these negotiations can be complicated by the factors of kind of the relationships between the entities that are doing the attacks. Um, the other thing I'll say on the negotiations. Uh, with these groups is some are very professional. You know, they'll, they'll, some will like apologize. Some uh, I've had one say, hey, we're sorry, this is our business. Some think of themselves as like, they're very noble. They'll say like, we're, one called themselves post-paid penetration testers. 
and say, and they'll say like, we'll even give you a report of how we got into your environment uh, after you pay us, uh, and we'll offer you some security tips. Yeah, like like they're doing the world a service. So they're all very different, um, but the negotiations can get very interesting with these groups. Yeah, for any aspiring ethical hackers and pen testers out there, this is not the model to follow. Do not do testing or infiltration of somebody's network or. <laughs> encryption of their data without their uh, written approval. <laughs> Might only work once. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm curious. I've heard a lot of, and so I think first of all, Stephen, this model of um, almost kind of the middle, the multi-level marketing malware scheme yeah. here. That's for as much as I try to learn and listen and stay up to speed with what's going on. That that's actually a new, a new model uh, for me to understand. Um, so that's really interesting. And the other thing I hear that's very conflicting is how often and the likelihood of actually getting the decryption keys. So I hear from one side, you know, you hear, oh, it's usually 80% because this is their business. And if they get the reputation of they're not providing the keys, then that word's going to get around and people will stop paying the ransom because why would they? Um, and then, you know, the other side of that coin is no, the the actual percentage of of, you know, um, remediation with the decryption keys and getting the decryption keys that will work is um, closer to 20% uh, because these are criminals. And then somewhere in the middle, we hear stuff like you'll probably get the key, but it's not straightforward to use the decryption keys. So what, let's tell us about all that. Yeah, so kind of a combination of all of those things. So I also just personally have done a lot of these incidents. Every time I've had a client pay a ransom, um, we've always gotten the keys. Uh, they may not always work on 100%. Um, there may be technical issues and errors like uh, corrupted files, but this is a business to the, the people who do these attacks. So absolutely, most of the time uh, you get the keys. The uh, groups I described that help you with the uh, negotiation, they will give you actual statistics by threat actor and say, here's the percentage that got keys. Here's the percentage where they worked. Uh, the FBI can give you that type of information as well for the different threat groups. But generally speaking, I'd say if you pay, it's a business, you do get the keys. In terms of you raise a good point, and it's it's not as simple as you get one key and it unlocks. You will get a file back from them. Uh, you then need to check that file and make sure there's not additional malware on that file. So you don't want to just take the file from the attackers and run that on your system. So it all takes a lot of time and it may not work. You may get several different keys. Um, they may give you thousands of different keys and you may have to work with a company to actually use those keys to restore files. So it's not as straightforward as here's the key, you get your stuff back. It usually takes quite a bit of work and some time, even once you pay and get the keys. I do want to tell a kind of a quick antidote uh, on, you know, the them giving you the keys. Um, they may use you if you pay a ransomware kind of as a reference. So when a client wants pay a ransom <laughs> and then months later, the CEO called me and said, we actually got a call from a competitor, uh, a competitor CEO called me and said they got hit with this ransomware attack. And the threat actors said, hey, you'll vouch for if we pay, we'll get the key. So they will say, hey, we hit this other organization. You can call them. They paid and they got the key. Um, so I've had that happen before as well. So I have to ask, do the threat groups do they provide support hey we're having trouble with the keys you sent can you help us do they, they, do they provide support <laughs> they will provide support in the sense typically on we'll help you obtain bitcoin instead of a bitcoin wallet they actually have 
call centers that do this, um, which is kind of, you know, crazy, but they do have support for these things. They will work with clients, especially now with the model of not just encrypting files. They also will exfiltrate files. So they'll copy files off of your network threaten to publish those. So even if you're able to restore from backups, they still have something else they can get you with. Uh, we'll, we're going to release these sensitive files unless you pay us. So oftentimes they'll provide support in that. You know, we'll help you prove to whoever that we deleted these files. So it's support, but not the kind of tech support you'd think in the classic sense, but they absolutely will help you set up a Bitcoin wallet and walk you through the process of how to fund it and get money to them. And Stephen, I have a question about... Um, you know, how, well, I guess it's a two-part question. The first part is, what what are your thoughts as, as a, you know, prior technical professional and a legal professional now on, and there's a lot of kind of regulation being considered that would ban here in the U.S. us paying ransom. Um, so I'm curious about your, your thoughts about that and whether you participate in those conversations, where those are heading, pros and cons. And then the, the kind of this, Second piece of that is, you know, it is a decision to pay ransom or or not. And I know there's, you know, time factors, money factors, reputation factors, and a lot of public sector feels like they have to be stewards of the public's money. Um, and so some some of them have, you know, internal maybe prohibitions on on paying ransom. So I'm just curious on, you know, your thoughts on whether, you know, that that potentially being banned. Um and what that, you know, the pros and cons around that. And then what are some of the decision factors that you would talk a client through when determining whether they're going to pay ransom? Yeah, so you're you're absolutely right. There is pending legislation in some jurisdictions on just banning the payment of ransoms. I think Australia may be a company that's considering that and some others. Um, there's also within the United States and the United Kingdom has something similar. Uh, there's a guidance from OFAC, the Office of Foreign I'm going to forget what it stands for. They're under the Department of Treasury, and I'm forgetting uh, foreign asset control, I think is what it is. Um, But they're under the U.S. Treasury Department, and they've issued some guidances on warning companies that, you know, there are people that are what they call um, SDNs or special designated persons where you're not allowed to pay these people, people like terrorists who are on a list. Um, so you're supposed to do, um, and the U.S. Treasury Department wants you to do some level of due diligence to make sure you're not paying someone on one of these lists because there is on the civil liability side, strict liability, meaning even if you didn't know they were on the list, if you pay them, uh, you can be liable for, uh, sanctions and, and, you know, monetary uh, consequences. And then on criminal side, if you knowingly pay, someone who's on one of those lists, uh, that, that could be actual jail time. You could be, you know, uh, you know, indicted and, and, you know, subject to, uh, actual prison time for making a payment to someone who's on one of those lists if you knew they were. Um, so because of that, um, that's actually a, a, a huge consideration in paying one of these threat actors is the possibility of sanctions or whether the payment is actually illegal um, in the jurisdiction you're in. Um, so there, there are, I am involved in a lot of discussions on that. I think in terms of factors, when companies are evaluating whether to make a ransomware payment or not, 
it has a lot to do with can they keep their business up and running and the severity and how quickly. So if I'm working with a, a cancer center or a hospital and patient lives are at stake and we're unable to restore from backups uh, and restore from backups quickly, that may weigh more in favor of paying a ransom than a company that may be, let's say, a manufacturer. And yeah, this has slowed us down on you know making a, a product or delivering things, but we'll eventually be able to rebuild our network and get back. So maybe they're less likely to pay. The other category I would see where you know there's a lot of pressure on companies to pay is if you're holding a third party's data. So if you are a, you know, a service provider and you have data on hundreds of different clients uh, that may be sensitive data and you've had a ransomware attack and there's the threat of exfiltration, you may be more likely to say, hey, we're going to get judged by our customers. Um, if we don't pay, um, you may have customers calling and saying, hey, you pay this ransom. Um, so I think those are situations where uh, we typically call that the double or triple extortion because the threat actors, they may look at the data and say, oh, you do business with XYZ company. And if they're not liking how the negotiations are going, they will reach out to that company directly and say, hey, we attacked this, you know, business that you that has your data and they're refusing to pay. We're going to leak your file that they don't pay or you don't pay us. Someone needs to pay us. Uh, so in those situations in particular, our clients are under a lot of pressure to pay a ransom. I'm curious to go a little bit of a different direction. Talk about the emotional factor, emotions in this, because I could, you know, some people are going to be pissed off, angry. Some people are going to be scared that you're going to find out we don't have the security controls we should have. How do you, I would imagine just having a third party helping you with that, but how do you keep the emotions? in check to make the right decisions going through. Yeah, that's a great question. During these incidents, and I'm not joking, these always happen kind of during the worst possible time. So, and I think the attackers do this intentionally. So it will happen while the CEO is on vacation in Alaska or during a holiday <laughs> or during a weekend, or I had an attack happen during uh, for a U.S. company during the Super Bowl. And I won't forget that one because I was like, I had not expected that one. That was a little creative there. And so they happen during awful times and people are humans and have emotions. And so it can be stressful. You have people who are working around the clock, um, you know, working diligently. And then also they may feel some sense of, am I going to get fired or am I going to get held responsible for this? So I like to tell people who work with me, keep that in mind when you're interfacing with the company's information security people is they may be worried about their own jobs, whether payroll is actually working, um, like whether they will get paid. That's a question that employees often ask. And they're just under a lot of stress and worry, am I going to get blamed? So oftentimes I'll tell people, you know, my not job, you know, there are other lawyers who are employment lawyers who may come in and assess whether people should get fired and who's in trouble entirely for this. That's not my Role. We're just getting through this incident um, and then we'll figure out later. You know, we're not looking to assess blame during the incident. We're looking just to get through it. And there'll be plenty of time later for people to evaluate what is done. But the human aspect of this is very real. Uh, the attackers uh, know and understand that human aspect. That's why, you know, firewalls don't care if it's Easter or not. You know, they're making these attacks based on when they think people are most vulnerable. Um, and so it's a big part of this. Uh, this makes us how to deal with the human aspect. And you know, I've literally had, you know, incidents where I'm an employee is like, you know, I'm going to quit. <laughs> like I've had people tell me that on the phone. I'm like, not quite yet, you know, or something like this, or or start blaming someone else or say, hey, I've been warning of this. So uh, a lot of times often, you know, communications become very important in these and what people say. So I like to say, let's just stick to facts and stick to getting through the incident. It's not the time yet to figure out, you know, who's responsible or what should have been done uh, different. We'll have plenty of time to, to assess that 
that later, but it's a big factor of this is just, you know, dealing with humans. I remember sitting at RSA several years ago at this point, and I don't, I don't know if I don't I can't remember if it was in the morning and we were having coffee or it was night and we were drinking whiskey, but I was sitting around with several friends who happened to work in, at CISOs and in the security organizations at, at various um, large banks and financial organizations. And I remember, you know, we're just sitting there chatting away and then the phones start going off and you with one person and then the next person, the next person, they all start looking at each other. And uh, there was, there was one, that was one of the major attacks across several of our financial organizations that they planned during RSA when they knew all the security professionals <laughs> were going to be. <laughs> yeah. And um, so they, they found a private room. I excused myself and it was a, not a fun week for the rest of them, but they, they all managed um, to handle it. But I'm going to tell you guys this, Stephen uh, and, and Mitch, you know, on that kind of emotional response, being an outside party, I was at a healthcare client probably a couple months ago at this point, um, walking through doing something with, with my contact there. And I suddenly see all of this nursing staff running around with papers, you know, like they're, they're carrying paper charts everywhere. There's no tablets, the computers are off, et cetera. And I turn around and I look at my, you know, my client. And I said, well, what what what's happening here? <laughs> you know, because this is one of the secured network infrastructures we've done where everything's connected and I, I know it's connected and it works. Um, and they were doing an incident response exercise. Mm. And I tell you what, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. If you've ever been in a hospital or you've had a family member in a hospital, the crushing fear of suddenly not having access to everything in the in the healthcare system, the patient records, the connected IV, all of these things that are so so hyper connected now, and everything that's so digital, that is, I mean, I still get chills because I mean, when you're standing in there watching it happening around you, and again, it was an exercise; it wasn't real. That's some scary shit. That did not make me feel <laughs> yeah. good. For sure. Yeah, it's a scary situation. And then, um, like you mentioned, um, you know, part of this, I was just on a call where the client, actually, one of their leaders was doing a good job of, he was asking questions like, hey, did you guys sleep last night? Like, this person seems like they've been working. I've been getting emails or messages from them, you know, 24-7. Let's give this person a break and have someone else take over. And that's an important part of the management as well, because, you know, we will make more errors, you know, thinking of hospitals. If people are not sleeping, if people are not eating, if people are, you know, under too much pressure, they will make other mistakes. And so part of managing it is that aspect as well. Yeah, I always joke that we have to keep everybody fed and watered. You do. <laughs> so I feel like this, uh, I'll, I'll do this as a, the last question, JJ, we're just about out of time. Um, I feel like we could do a whole nother show on this. Yeah. Is ransomware just a fact of life or is there, are there things on the horizon that is going to help combat ransomware? So that's a great question. If I had uh, looking kind of the crystal ball, I would hope that eventually we are able to better mitigate against this. I think there have been examples, I'll borrow from fire. Like if you would think of, you know, years and decades and maybe centuries ago, it was a common, you know, not so uncommon for entire cities to burn down because of fires. Like someone, you know, think about how many cities have had to be rebuilt because of big fires. Chicago and and I think Boston had some lots of cities around the world. This is a was kind of a common phenomenon. Now when you build a building, you know, one of the 
primary aspects is there fire control suppression systems and everything. It's in everything you do, how buildings are laid out. There's inspectors. There's all sorts of things. You know, we don't typically have now entire cities burned down because of a fire. And so I look at ransomware a lot like this because uh, it's similar to fire in that you could be doing great yourself. Your building could be fantastic, but if your neighbor is not and they catch on fire, it's going to affect you too. And that's really how ransomware is. Our, our companies are so interconnected that I don't have to attack you know, a particular organization. I can attack someone that they do business with or someone that entity does business with to get to them. So what it really will take is just kind of improvement across the board, everyone's information security, uh, improving and some better practices. I think we can really reduce the amount of ransomware and the severity of it. But I think it's possible. I'm not suggesting we go to a you know model where you have to have an inspector every time you release a piece of software or, or deploy a server. But I think there, you know, if we if we all raise our information security system, I think we could make it to where ransomware is is less of a threat and it comes back to our firefighting analogy then <laughs> <laughs> everyone's JJ, got a role in this <laughs> you do. jj parting thought anything you want to wrap us up with oh this has just been uh such a fun conversation Stephen. i hope we see you again i think there's a lot of takeaways for professionals and organizations that are i mean really this is something that applies to to every size organization and every technical professional and, and business owner, even, you know, all the way down to small businesses that don't have CISOs. Um, so this is really interesting. And I think we, we have a lot of um, actionable takeaways from this. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'd love to, to chat with you all again. Well, um, you know, one of the, I'm sure things are going well for you at Baker McKinsey, but you also have now a parallel career appearing on Tech Strong Panels. So <laughs> we'll be going. <laughs> awesome. It's been a great, great conversation. We really appreciate uh, your, your time today, Stephen. <laughs> Stephen Reynolds, who is a partner with Baker McKinsey, intellectual property and technology practice. Again, we'd love to have you back. Thanks for joining us, Stephen. All right. Thank you all.